This is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Hafta. So here's the bit that we'll call news laundry extra and much extra who would have thought that when we started news laundry hafta uh, maybe 3 or 4 years ago I would have the man who podcast I was hooked on to and I've been recommending for years on the hafta Christopher Lydon himself sitting on the hafta so Chris This is a huge fan moment for me and thank you so much for making the time. Listen, it's a joy for me. I love your work. I love being here in India. I'm beginning to think this is really my karmic home. Uh so thank you. I'll just introduce you in the formal introduction to our listeners. Christopher Lydon since 2005 has been the host of Open Source, an online global conversation on art, ideas and politics. Many of you Listen to Hafta know how often I recommend podcasts from there. A journalist in many media, he is credited with the original podcast Radio on the Internet in 2003. He has reported on US presidential politics for the New York Times in the 1970s, hosted public television news in Boston, and inaugurated the smartest of public radio conversations, The Connection, a national show based in Boston. So Chris, let's start with I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you but let's go you, for it. Can you tell us a bit about the connection what was it that that got you on radio? The connection was a sort of accident. I'd done television for a long time uh but a very enterprising lady who ran the public station in Boston said uh, why don't you try this and uh I instantly liked it. I I, I you know all of this media is has to do with voice, finding your voice. and it was literally just the sound of it feeling comfortable getting the cameras away uh i i enjoyed it from the word go it was a 2 hour daily program on everything and uh it had never been done quite that way before with a lot of culture books a lot of music a lot of part- audience participation in poetry contests story contests um what not but it it took off immediately and then it went to 75 cities and it was considered a big great success then we got in a fight about who owned it and it had a very unhappy ending but it was just an interruption in my discovery that that uh, a voice the joys of radio as opposed to print and what not and did that fight kind of end the show it's never kind of been revived uh, no well people tried to revive it but they truth is they couldn't do it without me or without my producer who was a kind of intimate partner in the whole thing mm-hmm. it just it was a moment in time and it worked sensationally people people still remember those connection shows crazy wonderful things that happened but it was both serious and tremendous fun and it was very intelligent but it was everybody could participate and did okay since i've been listening to your podcast for years now and i have had several conversations with you now that you have come to india um you have a very unhesitating sentence construction hmm. it's like like when i talk you see my pauses are long i'm kind of thinking okay what do i want to say next but in your case it's as if you have the entire paragraph constructed in your head and it rolls off your tongue with ease <laughs> see obviously a great storyteller um just audio or will we ever see you write because you have such interesting stories to tell and i can tell our audience i've been listening to many of them i, I mean what do, do i want to write write a book yeah yeah of course and um uh i think of it as much harder work i'm not so sure anything you were said about my interviewing technique is true i've been on done i mean uh, f- one thing a lot of it is just made up uh 
we used to say, I was always telling Mary McGrath, my producer, you know, I'm not ready for this interview. She was like, get in that studio, fake it, fake it. And then <laughs> ultimately we said, you know, once you learn how to fake sincerity, you can fake anything, right? Oh. Uh, but just keep talking. I grew up in a, I, I, I don't think about this thing too much, but I grew up in a very talky family. I was one of six kids, uh, all bright, all articulate. And uh, it wasn't that we argued so much as um, we did talk. We never missed a big dinner together. And uh, uh, that was what you were supposed to do, right? So what was growing up like in Boston? You've always been in Boston. I grew up in a Irish Catholic family, uh, not neither conventional nor terribly eccentric, but uh, my parents were both uh, smart, interesting people. My father didn't finish high school. My mother had graduate degrees from Harvard and Chicago. Whoa. So it was a, a mixed bag. But then my father was very ill all my life. He had bad Parkinson's disease. So he had to quit work. We were, we were genuinely poor. We had a little farm when I was growing up. Um, I mean, we moved to a little farm, and uh, I milked a cow morning and night. We had, I don't know, we had a old-fashioned, feels like balanced childhood. Um, and then we went to very good schools, all on scholarships, and uh, we were expected to, to do well, but it was not about money. My oldest brother is in the Foreign Service for a long career. My sister taught English, moved to Portugal. Um, all my family are writers or do-gooders of one sort or another, but we're all uh, very much in touch, and, and uh, I think we've had interesting lives. And now you have uh, three daughters, two of whom went to Harvard, one to Boston uh, University. So obviously education and degrees have been a very important part of... Yeah, that is family. assumed. But not, oddly enough, it's strange in this, in this gilded age that money, you know, the idea was to be a priest, if you could be, uh, a Catholic priest or a medical doctor. Uh, but if you couldn't do any of those, you were supposed to find something useful um, There's so many teachers. Make a family, yeah. But I mean, um, it was never a thought of, of getting rich, which I think was a blessing in those days. And now? And life was not as expensive as it is today. Sure. And, and today, do you, do you, how do you look at that value system? Does it persist? Yeah, it stands up pretty well. Um, you know, it, it's a funny thing in America. If you grew up in post-war and bought a house and worked all the time, you end up in the 21st century being rich. I mean, your house is worth a lot of money now, yeah. and you put stuff away, and inflation has uh, built it up. My kids will have a hard time buying the house that they grew up in. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that applies in India. It does. Yeah. So, but anyway, no, I, 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 never, I don't worry about money. I don't have to, but I, I don't live extravagantly either. Sure. As, you know, clear by the choices you've made, you've, your pursuit of knowledge and interesting things, let me put it that way, knowledge seems too heavy a word, um, but you pursue interesting things and interesting conversations. And one thing that I have noticed in all your interviews is um, you have interviewed people who I know, like Ashish Nandi and, and uh, Mark Tully. We were just listening to one of your conversations upstairs. Yes. And earlier had sent me a few links um, of mm. Indian, including Arundhati Roy. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. So you have this ability of a conversation that is flawless. It is uh, interesting. It is no, no, it, it's it terribly flawed. I, I, I hate to tell you, but anyway, I, I, it's nice to hear you 
but but uh, what what I want to know is what makes you so good at conversing with people? Is it just like uh, you know, or LeBron James cannot dissect how his moves are? They're just a part of him because he's been doing it so long. Hmm. Is it pure experience, or do you really prepare for your conversations? Do you have a method to how you approach them? I do appro- I do prepare. I do enjoy them hugely. Uh, a good conversation is, uh, it's not better than sex, but it's it's very, very good thing to, it's also, I mean, one thing that I've discovered, Abhinandan, is that a good conversation is a, is a serious human encounter. It's a spiritual encounter. If it works right, if it's organized right, and if you're prepared to be surprised, to be open, to be, make it two-way, I, I mean, I've, it's obvious, but... It takes you a long time to figure it out that information is not a, a conversation is not about the information and neither is it a contest I don't do adversarial interviews for the most part because yes. I'm not interested in proving that I'm right or you're wrong or that you are a bad guy or you once were a bad guy or you did something terribly terribly wrong and now confess it's not that kind of thing at all it's much more um, uh, opening into some enlightenment or feeling or discovery uh, it's a kind, if it works well, two things. It, it's kind of music. I'm making this up as I go along. Mm-hmm. It's kind of music, but it's also, I mean, the, 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 the sweetest compliment I've, I get from time to time, not often enough, but is that, Chris, your conversations are like jazz. It's a kind <laughs> of an exchange. It's like, I, I'll, I'll play eight bars, you, you play eight bars back at me, and mm-hmm. we'll talk, and we'll take it someplace. So I, I think that helps. Another thing is I don't, you know, I don't interview people that I really don't like because I, I don't, I, it would be a waste of time. I, I, I seek out people that I admire um, and not for political reasons, but I think have something to say. And I suppose the challenge is to get them to say something that they haven't said before or said it, say it in a different way. Um, you know, I, I've said to you, um, conversations like this are not seduction and they're not psychiatry but they have something to do with both there's you're trying to sort of get a certain veil to drop you're trying to get closer to the subject than um than the ordinary so, so it's it's a challenge in that way if i could ask you when you say that you would not interview someone you don't like does that restrict you to only people you agree with or um no, I would love, I'd be happy to, and I do a lot of interviews with people that I, I don't agree with, but not that I don't like, not that I think are fundamentally meretricious or bullying or, or just... Uh, obnoxious. You know, well, obnoxious, but ill-motivated and insincere. Or, um, and that's com- that comes up more and more uh, recently I mean, in, in American life there are there are deep divisions in our in our country now in the conversation um and i'm not interested in people who i have a rule now really uh, i don't interview people who were wrong and stayed wrong on the iraq war okay i i i think you know that was such an incredibly important test as it turned out of american uh who we are and who we are in the world people who who politicians or journalists or Anybody who you know who whiffed on that pitch, uh, I I think they should they should see what they did and retire, frankly, from public conversation. Wow. 
And I don't mean to be too nasty about it, but I mean, that was a decisively bad move for our country and for the world. And we're still stuck in it, in my opinion. The war goes on in Afghanistan. It was crazy. It was nonsense. It was an imperial, phony pretense that we are the inheritors of the British Empire and we'll do it with, you know, bombs or something. Uh, That was so fundamentally wrong um, that people should say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, and go home. Interesting what you said about um, you may not agree with them, but there should be a certain level of sincerity and, and, and you have to like them at, at, at that level. But now you have your own show and you run your own podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was it always that way when you were, let's say, working for a network? Um, I'm sure there were expectations of you, of who you would get on your show, the kind of conversations you'd have. Um, did you have this attitude and this choice back then or were your conversations different? Hmm. Nobody ever forced uh, interview subjects on me exactly. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I may be covering up a, a, a weakness in the sense that I don't... We used to debate. I was a debater in high school uh, and there's a certain fun and pleasure in taking on a, an argument and, and winning it, whether you believe it in argument or not particularly, but um, I don't enjoy that kind of thing. And I also don't trust myself to do it in a live broadcast. I mean, somebody might wipe me out uh, uh, with with knowledge or argument or rhetoric, and uh, I'd be very reluctant to put myself in that position. So I'm much, I, I, I don't believe in strictly conversational journalism either. Sometimes you have to ask tough questions and get answers that people don't want to give you. That's another matter. But I, I don't, it's not my forte. That's not your genre. So what makes a good conversation, Chris, tell us? What makes a good conversation? Um, uh, some sort of uh, revelation, some sort of surprise. I find myself going back to an experience I had with Harold Evans. I don't know if you know that man. He was he was really one of the great, he's still alive. Uh, he was one of the great editors in the English language uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 20th century with the Sunday Times in London. He was a great investigator. Uh, he had a huge team of, of just the best uh, there was. He's now, he, he married Tina Brown uh, of the New Yorker fame, right. but he was a famous man in his own right. But he, anyway, probably 15 years ago, he, he put together a book called The American Century. And for one thing, I had met him before. I wanted this to be good. Uh, and I, I was trying to think, how do I, how do I bring emotion into play and his part. And in this whole history of the American century, um, there was, of course, World War II was at the center of it. And he was a boy born probably around 1930, uh, which puts him in his late 80s now. But anyway, he was growing up in England. I think it may be not in London, but in any event, he was scared out of his wits by the war and Hitler and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, he told a thing in the book that I realized would, could be very, very interesting if he would talk about it personally. And it was a moment when England was basically going down the tubes uh, and Churchill was desperate to get American commitment, if not as an ally uh, of a supplier. And uh, so in any event, um, Franklin Roosevelt, who was inclined that way, um, sent his, one of his closest people, Harry Hopkins, to speak to the British cabinet And Hopkins did. Hopkins was a kind of mysterious man, a minister without portfolio, close to Roosevelt. 
short form, I, I, I asked Harry Hopkins to tell that story. And he did, and he told it beautifully. Um, but the climax of it was that Harry Hopkins, and I get, I get kind of uh, emotional uh, just thinking about it. Harry Hopkins recited to the, the British cabinet from the book of Ruth in the Old Testament a, a line, uh, I think it's Naomi's line, but the, the line is, whither thou goest, I will go to the end. You know, y- your people are my people. This is from the Bible. Uh, your God is our God. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to, it's going to overwhelm me here. But Harry Evans, when he read, you know, he spoke those words, he, he wept like a baby. He, he, and he said, later he said, Churchill wept like a baby when Harry Hopkins said, your problem is our problem and we will be there with you. Count on it. Um, and that was for me a memorable sort of moment when um, he was being himself, you know, uh, and speaking from the heart, mm-hmm. and uh, he touched everybody. But I think it, it's not that you're trying to make people cry on the radio, mm-hmm. um, uh, but to summon some um, some statement that is that comes from some very deep place and surprises even the person who's talking. So I would say another thing that I lo- I lo- I've learned in in on radio is that I, I say it's it's kind of music, but musicians are tremendous talkers, probably because, well, some of them are, maybe because they don't often get a chance to do it when they're not singing. But um, Mm. um, uh, also, music conveys something I'm always looking for. Um, I say, I've learned doing radio that music is really, it's only two degrees or one degree separated from religion, from spirit language. We're talking about something that is profoundly moving, completely intangible, invisible. Where does it come from? Nobody really knows. And yet it's overwhelmingly powerful to the individual, to crowds, to dancers, to almost anything. But it, it carries you into another medium, another space. So you say musicians are more um, sensitive to the human interaction? Well, it... Uh, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I'd say that they have their own musical language, which um, just moves people, and people are surprised to be so moved. But anyway, I'm thinking of you know I always love it when musicians or even non-musicians sing in an interview, and I'm not about to sing for you, but <laughs> you know, Wynton Marsalis, the the the, the trumpet player, uh, brought his trumpet into a uh, into a studio with us, and For him, it's like an extension of himself to, mm-hmm. well, I, I should play that. Yo-Yo Ma um, brought his, to my great delight, but now I realize, of course, he, he would never have done it otherwise. He brought his cello into the studio, and it's his simplest way to illustrate a point. of it. Well, is, uh, let me play that the Bach version of that. And um, so they're revealing something deep, intangible, nonverbal, but also I think people... Uh, people are moved by uh, by music and discussions of music. So I, I, I love to do almost any, um, get any strong musical element. One of my favorite podcasts is one we did about um, Billie Holiday, the singer. Mm-hmm. Of course, she was long gone, but um, we worked hard on it with a, a new biographer of her story. And um, I don't know, there's just nothing more touching 
And it's all the more beautiful, I, I would say, because I, I'm intensely interested in politics, as I think you are, but I'm always trying to get away from politics, something that uh, has no, you know, when you're talking music with people, um, you're not trying to sell them anything or take any advantage or whatnot. I remember a woman, we were doing a program once early on in the, in the Connection days uh, with a pianist, a German pianist. He was playing Brahms with the Boston Symphony that week, and we needed to fill an hour. And I thought, well, we could always talk about Brahms with this, this German character, and we did. And, but a woman called in, and she said, <laughs> she said um, Chris, I'm going to tell you something rather personal, but she said um, she was hooked as a child on Brahms's piano quintet, a magnificent, almost symphonic piece of work. But she said the music, it just reached her in some very strange way. And she said it was the first time I now know that I, I fell in love completely. I fell in love with Brahms. I fell in love with the music. Uh, I was transported in a, in a different sort of way. Anyway, her talking about that on the radio was a kind of music, and I remember it as a sort of, that's where you're trying to get in a conversation. Uh, I'll just come back to what makes a good interview, and I hope you have some tips to give us, but before I, you can take that question, are you a very religious man? Am I what? A very religious man? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think about it a lot. I, I am a religious person. I think I was just born religious, which is to say, uh, not sectarian, but I, I am interested in um, the invisible life. I'm, invisib I'm, I'm interested in um, the reality of spirit. You know, it comes down sometimes people say to, are we, are we religious people? Um, are we human beings having a spiritual experience or are we spiritual beings having a human going, experience. A, going through a human experience? I, I tend to the latter. I think our core is spirit, is intangible is in some fashion miraculous, divine, unseen, um, and I, I'm that way. I grew up uh, in a uh, you know, fairly orthodox Roman Catholic family. None of my sibs have any interest in religion anymore. It was not required exactly, but I find I, I would still call myself a, uh, a very grateful Christian, a sinner saved by grace, as we say. Uh, it was partly mm -hmm. <laughs> through the gift of um, being drawn into an uh, African-American Baptist church in Boston, but uh, which is, again is a very, it's a long story, but it's, I, I think the African-American theology is, is the best kept secret in American life. And it's very, very profound. Uh, it is non-dogmatic. It is black culturally, but it is not exclusive. Uh, it is very Jesus-centric and very Bible-based, but it is not literal. It is not uh, what you say is not. I don't know. It's it's not fundamentalist. It's deeply mysterious, uh, and it you know it feels right to me. Right. But I, I, you you asked about uh, the, the, you know, the sort of sort of interview. in, interviewing things. You know, I, I said it's not uh, psychiatry. It's not seduction. But I, I, I because somebody asked me, I, I did pull together ten rules, uh, and I won't go through them all. But one of them is is play doctor. In 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 other words. Uh, imagine that the person you're interviewing, first of all, imagine that they really want to tell you something. That's why they're there. Mm -hmm. They may want to just sell their book, which is uh, all right, but they also want to uh, tell you something about themselves. Um, there's a marvelous doctor, a Nobel Prize doctor named Bernard Laun in Boston, now a very old man, but he wrote a marvelous book on 
on medicine, um, the, the, the lost art of healing, but one of his rules is that um, he says the most important medical device ever, ever invented was the patient interview. Sometimes it has to go two hours. Sometimes it has to have a second session. But when the, when the patient finally says, doctor, if you really want to know, you know, my mother was a beast or, or my father was a saint or something, um, that kind of, you're, you're looking for something else. That revelation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, one of my basic images of the um, interview is that we're, we're on a plane. We've just gotten on a plane. We're going from, you know, Calcutta to New Delhi. Not forever, but it's not, you know, there we are. And unless we get violent, we're going to be just sitting there for with each other a couple for of the hours. Next exactly. Couple of hours, yeah. And um, so I say, oh, my God, you're that guy. Abhinandan, Sekri, I've heard about you. I read your book. I know, you know, or whatever. Could we talk? And the interview you want is is that conversation. Immediately you think, wait a sec. Soon as we get home, I, uh, or land, I, I'm going to call my wife. I'm going to call my best friend and say, I met Abhinandan Sekri, and you know what we said? <laughs> you know what he he talked? Blah blah blah. Um, so you, you want to be surprised. I want to know that you're deep down as you know. Uh, you know, the greatest billiards player that ever lived or something like this, mm -hmm. something that you don't normally tell people. Um, and um, I also want you to find out something about me. Anyway, uh, what, what are some of the other basic rules? Uh, the ultimate basic rule in interviewing, I think, is, is uh, to listen, to listen very carefully. Listen for the arc of the conversation. Listen for little hints that come up. Of, and, and you're good at this, is saying, no, let's take that point particularly, mm -hmm. um, pull on that string. Right. Um, now I'll move on. Thank you for those insights. And I hope uh, our listeners who are uh, tuned into the Hafta Extra uh, and want to do interviews of their own or become sparkling conversationalists will learn something from that. You too can be Abhinandan <laughs> Sekri when you grow up. Yeah, you're very kind, Chris. And uh, it's it's just so satisfying to hear this from you even though it may not be true. But um, I'd like to move into now just your comments on the media. And I, it's a slightly longer question, so allow me to explain. Uh, several people say, rightly so, that it is unfair to describe the media as the media, that it's this one monolith which is all saying the same thing. Uh, I know it's not true in India, and I also know it's not true in the US because it is so polarized. But maybe it's a saying the same thing in form or in importance or everyone is either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. But there's stuff happening other than Trump, which you said on the sh uh, on the media rumble that you don't want to talk about Trump. You talk about something else, something interesting. But Although we have to, but go ahead. How has the media evolved in the U.S. and you've been a part of it for long enough? Where is it headed? And um, what do you hope to see it become? I would say it's a deep question. I would say... Uh, as to media, what it means. I, uh, what if we let the word out? I think, I think of public conversation. Where, what is the tone? What is the reality? Literally, the re, you know, how connected to reality is the public conversation out there? And that includes all sorts of uh, corporations and technologies and, and individuals. Uh, but leave them all aside. What I'm obsessed with nowadays is that is public conversation. If you walked into the House of the United States, 
What would you hear in that house as a visitor? You'd hear a tremendous distemper. You'd hear anger. You'd hear hostility, silences, acting out. You'd hear all kinds of um, bad symptoms. Again, if you were listening with the sort of the medical ear, how does this sound? Mm-hmm. Does not sound good. Um, but I also think um, uh, it's, it's a very deep question of what's gone wrong in the American conversation. And it's not basically or ultimately or most seriously Trump. I, I would... It precedes that. Oh, long, it, it substantially precedes it. And it's quite identifiable, in, at least in my, in my view of, of life. Um, and and I, want, I want to get there. I want to explain how I get there. But I think there's a crisis, really... What we're talking about is a crisis of the American empire and its own contradictions. We are staring at the bad effects of an empire out of control. I, I feel it's, I don't know enough of the history of the 20th century, but to me, it's, we've been through the Boer War. We went through the sepia mutiny before England, and we've been embarrassed. And we've seen the, the, the fundamental brutality of what England was up to. The Boer War, it really got ugly. And then comes the First World War course. But the United States since Vietnam, this is my view, uh, has been militarily out of control. We haven't had a win in that period, a moral win or a actual win win Mm. or any kind of win. And we have taken no, well, I won't say no, we we have not taken account of, of that problem. Senator Fulbright had a long series of very important hearings after the Vietnam War, in which John Kerry famously said, in uniform, a distinguished soldier who said, gentlemen, who is going to be the last man to die for a mistake? Now, that really focused the question very hard. Um, We had an absolutely miserable, disastrous war in Iraq. The strange thing, nobody ever notices, I don't know why, John Kerry, the witness before Fulbright, became, he got elected to Congress and then to the Senate, he became chairman of the very same committee. And he never held hearings on what the hell went wrong in Iraq, which John Kerry had voted for? I mean, it really turned around in a big way. But I think in a, I mean, that story uh, about when he was a witness uh, in front of Senator Fulbright, what 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 was? Well, he was hard. he was a leader of the Vietnam veterans against the war. Okay. He had volunteered, served, been wounded, been decorated, came home and said, "This is a mistake." Um, and he testified in uniform, having thrown away his medals. Uh, exactly how wrong it was. But, uh, I, 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 you know, and later it, it, on, the same man voted for the Iraq war. Well, he voted for the Iraq war. But no, the remarkable thing is, what were the chances that that young veteran sitting before a witness before the committee would end up being the chairman of the committee? Mm-hmm. However, 30, 40 years later. Hmm. And we, but he never scheduled hearings on the, uh, Iraq, the war. Iraq war. And I think there is somewhere near the fundamental agony of what the American uh, story uh, has stumbled into, uh, sort of ongoing war. Barack Obama said, we don't do dumb wars. That was, that was what won him the nomination against Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. It's what won him um, uh, the contest against uh, uh, John McCain, mm-hmm. that he had not voted for that war. A, he didn't put a single other person in high office in his government who had voted against, or who had been against the war. Um, but furthermore, then he won a Nobel Prize. 
he was barely inaugurated. He got a Nobel Peace Prize, really, for just not being George Bush. Thank you. <laughs> and immediately turned and said, well, oh, by the way, we got one more good one to fight in Afghanistan. As far from the American life, American geography, American knowledge, American acquaintance, I mean, there's not even an American ethnic presence that's Afghan. We, we know nothing. It's like fighting over the moon. But he did it. And nobody said, are you kidding? Did um, nobody say that? Well, well that's, well, I mean, the New York Times like? didn't, the okay. media didn't, mm -hmm. the, the assembled or disassembled elders of the, of the culture didn't say, Mr. President, no blinking way. You just got a peace prize and we're not extending. That war has been going on, when was that? Oh, nine, we're... Uh, we're in 18, yeah. Yeah. We're, almost we're, a decade now. And it's still going. And the point is, we don't, we don't know how to call it to attention. Any of that. What does this have to do with Trump? In my own view, uh, and, and I'm not alone in this, um, uh, Trump was elected in precisely those precincts, those counties in America, and most specifically Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and I'm missing one, maybe Indiana, where the highest degree of young men had been recruited into that war and died or suffered or come back, you know, addicted or, or the worst suffering of that war visited on those counties, a lot of them so-called hillbilly counties. Um, but that's red state America. It's never been recognized in our media in a, a sort of popular conversation that that was the foundation of Trump's win and that Hillary Clinton... Uh, and even Obama, but certainly Bill Clinton before them, had been involved in this 30-year, 35-year history of completely unavailing, ugly, asymmetrical, bullying, imperial, neo-imperial wars in the Middle East. Um, and that Hillary Clinton had made no significant break with Donald Trump, on the other, accused uh, Jeb Bush angrily of letting his brother lead us into this awful, awful kind of history. In other words, I think uh, this is not to justify Donald Trump at all. He's, a, he's a, not, not just a scoundrel. He's a vulgarian. He's an ugly man. At the same time, he was drawing on, I think, at the base, the, the contradictions, shall we say, of American policy over, you know, really since... Um, I don't know when to say, economic policies going back actually to Jimmy Carter and military policies um, going back to... Bush the first? Yeah, Bush one in yeah. the Middle East. And um, again, th there's a stunning rejection of the American empire, but also of American political uh, consensus over that period, and also the media consensus. It's, it's, it's strange that, um, I mean, I lived through the Vietnam period, went to Vietnam as a, as a journalist briefly, um, there was active, articulate, considered resistance to that war. Um, it was not the majority necessarily, but we don't have anything like that in our media with respect to these Middle East wars. There's no, the New York Times, um, I, I, I single them out because they are the most, far the most best paper we have, but also the most influential. Um, the New York Times endorsed the war in Iraq. Yeah, and never that. really pulled back from it. You mm -hmm. know, George Bush is famous for um, declaring, you know, mission accomplished on, on, a, on a carrier. Uh, the New York Times um, 
did just as as badly, and their columnist Tom Friedman did did worse, in my opinion, in um, saying that this had to happen, and that it was uh, a defensible response to 9/11. Which, uh, anyway, uh, we could we could talk about that forever. I could talk about that forever. But uh, there is a there is an, a reckoning of bad policy, both economic policy, which is creating a monstrous gap in American fortunes but also a, a military policy and a political policy abroad that makes no sense. Any, any child could see that if, if it was framed in the right perspective, but we don't. Anyway, that is the, the, the confusion, the denial, the euphemism, the evasion that we're, that we're struggling with, I think, in our media and our politics. So was it fundamentally, I'd say it's the wars. The media did not have the confidence or the um, moral courage to question something that they would be perceived as being anti-national or unpatriotic. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it began even earlier. When George W. Bush was elected, so-called elected, in, 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 ninth, in, in the year 2000, in fact, he was not elected. He was chosen by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. For want of clear, uh, a clear decision in in the votes. This is the this is the famous Florida recount. Yes, but it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, including two members of the court who had been appointed by his father, uh, said no. We, we must go with give the decision to uh, uh, George Bush. Uh, thoroughly arguable still to this day, but in my humble opinion, in a con- in a free country. With a, you know, Hemingway said the great American <laughs> virtue was the shit detector. You know, we know when we're being fooled or being played with, toyed with. Um, people knew this was not right. And also it was unprecedented that the, that the Supreme Court should pick the president. And in my humble opinion, at least some newspaper, maybe the New York Times, but even one to have, should we say, asterisked President Bush. In my opinion, it should have said President Bush, asterisk. The footnote says, selected, not elected, first one ever, or something like that, mm-hmm. to put him on notice that um, he had a very, very loose claim. In my opinion, Trump, the agitation around Trump, Trump versus the media, media versus Trump, is the kind of, it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle that we should have had over George Bush, and we didn't. We didn't have it over the war in Iraq, and now here we are with Trump. The Trump problem is a deep one. Why? He has, he thrived on attacking uh, the conventional candidates. He, he blew through that Republican field like nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and he seems to have uh, defeated Hillary Clinton electorally by a substantial margin. Uh, by ruthless attack, attack, attack. The media, meantime, especially the New York Times, um, attack, attack, attack Trump. The attacks helped him get elected, and as people will now <laughs> can see, it's also almost brought the New York Times back from the dead. They, what is their job now? It's to attack Trump. In it's worked out for both of them. Exactly. It's a completely unproductive um, warfare. So, sorry, so what you're saying is that it did work for Trump because combat is his is his space and and the and, and, establishment and, uh, was unpopular by then and apparently new york times subscriptions go up dramatically each time he attacks them so yeah they, that's their mode now we had there's nobody much 
it's really hard in America to find a dispassionate or tempered account of what what has happened, what we're going through, uh, because both sides of the war have have decided it's good for them. You know, Les Moonves, the CBS guy, has said, I don't know if it's good for America, but Donald Trump has been very, very good for CBS. No question, um, the New York Times has decided that um, it's good for them, too, to be eternally flailing. I see. And where would you um, like to see the media go? I understand you'd like it to ask the questions that need to be asked and not just engage in combat. That's what I'm getting from what you, how you look at media and its role. Uh, the important questions, when they should have been asked, weren't asked. And once they weren't asked, hmm. it just went away from there and went, went into a zone of constant combat. And, I mean, it's interesting you'd say that I haven't really thought about that, but maybe... That's a mistake even we should avoid and not just try to engage in combat, but, but ask the questions across um, you know, policy and governance. But what would it take? Uh, but would you also concede that when it comes to the news media, for all its flaws, uh, the American media, and I can tell you from a country where we've had two editors lose their jobs recently, and there are two more in a series of mm. many, um, in a very hostile environment towards the news media. Hmm. At least America has a freedom that is unprecedented around the world that one can attack Trump the way he can be attacked in the US. I can't think of very many countries hmm. where you could get away with that. That's true. And we should count our blessings in that respect. Um, on the other hand, I, I, to me, given the clarity uh now, but I think even then, about the folly of the war in Iraq, it's amazing to me that not one major media institution that you can think of opposed the war. Not one, um, including the Washington Post, the New Yorker magazine, my own hometown paper, the Boston Globe, which is considered a good liberal paper. Mm -hmm. um, not one of them saw that trap and or had the courage to say, no, no. Um, the 9-11 anger was overwhelming. It had consumed America completely. Well, but I don't even believe that. I, I, I don't... Um, the United States, we have a bloody history, but I, I, I knew... I didn't know anybody who died in 9-11, but I knew families in which members died. Um, I didn't... I think the vengeance, the spirit of vengeance was cooked up. It was not a popular necessity to... Um, Maybe go get Osama and maybe strike Iraq, strike Afghanistan at that time. Um, a lot of people defend that. Um, I'm not so sure. And, and the war in Iraq was never warranted. I think that was payback, payback for the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. I think it was much more in Israel's interest, on Israel's agenda than on ours. Um, it was indefensible legally. They cooked up. Terrible uh, lies for, that Colin Powell presented at the UN. Um, this was a deliberate extension of American military uh, power in the world, which we we've become used to. But it's 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 Eisenhower's military-industrial complex run amok, rather than the essential feeling of the American people. In my in in, in my opinion. Anyway, oh. uh, but you you asked another question. What 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 is to do about this? And the worst of it is, I've been undone. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Certainly, I, I love your work, my work, 
podcasting, honest talk, but it's not enough to, to res- anything like enough to resolve this contradiction. Um, it may take, it may take more time. It may take a deeper tragedy. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. We're not connecting the consequences to our own curiosity about causes. We're not constructively engaged in this question of why are we so unhappy? Why do these things connect? What is this shocking rate of addiction coming back in our veterans? Suicides by American troops. More people suicides in the Iraq war than than actually battlefield co- casualties. Yeah, um, that's that's true for for uh, a section of the security forces in India as well. Uh, but when 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 do we connect the dots and say stop the music? And when you find yourself digging yourself into a hole, first thing stop digging, mm-hmm. or just or or, or or go to some wiser source. Um, it's another thing in America. Uh, we're short on on respected wisdom mm-hmm. in our country, it's sort of, um, including the New York Times. I mean, including these uh, these institutions that are thought to be um, above the battle, or speaking for the long view, speaking for experience, speaking for our soul, speaking for our national reputation. Mm-hmm. I mean, who stood up and said? Um, First of all, we're not meeting the UN standards, the the, the legal standard of, of invasion, but also we're repulsed by the idea of American military power, air power designed for the Armageddon with the Soviet Union to be rained down on a on a single country that has never attacked or threatened us. Um, that was a moral outrage. I think all of these things are, are churning in the, in the American psyche, soul, uh, in this whole period. And Donald Trump, God knows, is no answer. He was not part of the problem. He was not in on the design of the problem. He's, uh, in one sense, a um, symptom of the yeah, disease that yeah. had infected the American psyche. And hopefully, uh, he may be the pus that flows out uh, so that there can be some sort of cleansing. Um, but I'll, I'll be listening to your podcast to provide the answers. Uh, no, no, you won't find it there. <laughs> but you will find, I don't know, we, it's not that we don't talk about Trump because we do. Uh, and we have. I, we, and I think what American politics in largest No, but space. We, we even talk about Trump uh, when we have to. Um, but I, I, and I think we were very early actually in 2015, August of 2015, in taking him seriously, not not his mind seriously, but his his presence. Um, but I love to repair back to uh, those other things that keep going on in America, including the music, including the literature, including the fun. Um, and it's funny being in India again. I've been here before a number of times, but um, you know we speak of this trend and that trend. People mostly don't like uh, in India from afar and some here, but India is India. India is thousands of years old and, and it doesn't change as, as, you know, as radically day to day or month to month, year to year, campaign to campaign uh, as we pretend. Is that good or is that bad? I think it's good. I think it's good and it's good in America. When I think of the things that we do well, um, 
in our culture, in our conversation, in our family life, in our local life. Um, there's lots of ways to find reassurance in sort of the long-term just touch of, of our country, of, our, of, our, of the blessings of life. I mean, fundamental things. I mean, I'd like to hear from a person like you who uh, reads a lot and you've been to India a couple of times, although it was decades ago. Uh, I'll tell you, and I've, I've articulated this view on our podcast, Hafta, often that, you know, why I think um, America has remained the greatest country in the world and one can contest what greatest means. But the most influential mm-hmm. and the birthplace of many ideas and I was very um, offended once I was listening to uh, mm. Christian Amanpour's show in the morning um, and on CNN. And she was uh, interviewing this uh, American gentleman who'd written a book and it was about his book. And he said, um, you know, we were the rational people and we, we are not anymore. We gave a science rationality based approach to the world which was led by superstition or feudalism or, you know, the rights of the king. Hmm. And I was a bit offended, like, you know, why is America claiming credit for that? And then <laughs> when I thought about it, it was true. I mean, uh, and what was, so what I'm saying is it was America that went from slavery to Rosa Parks to Martin Luther King to uh, Jim Crow. That's what you call right. the, the law. To an Obama. And to the new Jim Crow. And to the new Jim Crow and to Obama, you know, what, within 100 years or 120 maybe? And the, the rapidity of that change is phenomenal. Uh, you know, you, you mess up, you screw up, you fix it and you get another way and you, you find. And because it is not thousands of years old, hmm. it can embrace a new idea quicker. Whereas in India, I think we are, I, I, I'm certain I will not see a Dalit uh, or, a she- uh, or, or a prime minister president belong to the scheduled caste or scheduled tribe in my lifetime. I, mm. I, I'd be shocked. You could, you know, punch me down in the feather if that happens. Mm. Uh, even though Bapu Gandhi, you know, almost a century ago now has been talking about uh, abolishing the caste system. Because it is thousands of years old and we are so stuck in our ways, mm. Is there an inability to change? And while many people look at it as a strength, and I'm sure it is, um, our traditions, our deep cultural heritage, it also keeps us from embracing new ideas. Hmm. Now, give me a counter view of why you think it's a good idea. I mean, you don't have to, but... Which is a good idea now. To be thousands of years old, I mean, what does that really do uh, for you? I mean, how how does that help a civilization? you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm for, you know, life is much more continuity than it is change. And uh, I don't know, that's good qualities and bad. I'm not for the caste system. I'm not for being, you know, in, embedded in 2,000-year-old habits either. Um, and there are, but there are also great old traditions in America, some of them horribly bad. There's a fundamental racial blindness in our country that is not, been solved. Some people think it's not even eased. But then there are also terrific virtues in both cultures, um, yours and ours. And I think we have to remind people of them and remind ourselves of them. There's greatness in your traditions, which I don't know enough about. But in our own, we spent three weeks last year observing the, the bicentennial of Henry David Thoreau, uh, who was a great influence, we are told, on Mahatma Gandhi, but known around the world, a philosopher, uh, eccentric, odd stick, 
uh, who, who lived, you know, just a few miles from the city of Boston uh, with his friend Emerson. And um, there's a quality in that man's writing, thinking, experience, life that is profoundly moving, profoundly American, profoundly trashed in so many ways by the commercialism and by the waste uh, in American life. But on the other hand, it's still there. Uh, we live by uh, Thoreau principles in so many ways, and Emersonian. Um, so I think, uh, I don't know, sometimes I think it's more to the point to, to talk about those characters. Um, I'm, I'm especially devoted to the jazz tradition in American life, which I think is, is the most powerfully wonderful, original, deeply moving, um, infinitely rich uh, contribution the United States has made to the world. Um, and I, I, I think you could meditate on that musically, mm -hmm. but conversationally forever and drown out Trump. You'd eventually overwhelm him with the, with the beauty of American accomplishment in, in music, but also literature, which also reminds me, if, you're, if we're looking for a closing note, I, you asked what makes a great interview. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a, a writer, I didn't understand him until I started doing radio. And it had something to do with the discovering sort of the collective wisdom of people calling in, making a general conversation. We're a middle-class culture uh, and dumbed down, we keep saying. On the other hand, um, when you ask people to call in on interesting subjects, by God, they do. That was what got me into Emerson's enthusiasm, uh, his belief despite everything. And he was no rosy optimist, but that there's a great experiment going on here. Here's what he said in his Divinity School address. He was talking about uh, lots of other things, but he had a great way of digressing. And he said this, We mark with light in the memory the interviews we have had that made our souls wiser, that spoke what we thought, that told us what we know, that gave us leave to be what we inly were. Now, I read it. It shocked me. I thought, that's my job. That's what I'm trying mm -hmm. to do every day. But he had it that a conversation, an interview that tells you what you know and that gives you permission to be who you are. Um, and, and I don't know, I enjoy struggling with you, uh, not struggling with you, but in, in this game in to, conversation. to do that. Sure. Um, thanks, Chris. Uh, this has been the most enjoyable conversation I've had. Uh, I, I <laughs> it's a am... treat for me, Abhinandan. I, I think we have a kind of meeting of minds and spirits here, which is a huge delight. We must make something of it. We should, and I hope we do. And to many more conversations, Chris, thank you for coming to the Media Rumble, and thank you for coming to our office, and thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it again. Sure. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.